Hey, I have a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audio selections, ranging from books to podcasts to even meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I can listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author and the publisher do not sponsor me at all. Every recommendation is a book I personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 63 of History of the Marine Corps, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Last week's episode covered one of the bloodiest battles of the Mexican-American War, the Battle of San Pascual. We followed Gillespie and the United States as they prepared to take Los Angeles for a second time. This episode discusses the end of the Mexican-American War. We review the peace treaty and the four high-level consequences the treaty had on Mexico. We also follow Gillespie and Stockton's life after the war. The episode ends by introducing the start of the Civil War. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. With Los Angeles secured, the conquest of California started to come to an end. The U.S. Army began to show up in California, and Commodore Stockton started to transition the responsibility of fortifying the new U.S. state. He appointed Fremont as the governor of California, and with his battalion, set up camp in Los Angeles. Most of the Marines and sailors in the area boarded ships and started to make their way to San Diego. When naval forces arrived, Stockton received a letter stating that General Bustamante was marching from Mexico towards their destination with 1,500 men. Stockton immediately sent a force 120 miles south of San Diego. He landed a detachment of Marines and sailors and waited for Bustamante to show up. But after further investigation, it turned out that Bustamante and his 1,500 men weren't making their way north. This decision was one of the last that he would make as Commodore in the Pacific. As soon as he received intelligence that Bustamante was not heading in their direction, he boarded his men and made his way back to San Diego. Once he arrived, Stockton left for San Francisco. He handed over the command to Commodore William B. Shubrick and made his way back to Washington on foot. Almost four weeks after the transition, a battalion of Mormons, 
led by Philip St. George Cook, traveled to San Diego and helped defend the town. A detachment of Marines was also garrisoned in San Diego in February and in March, but the Army provided the bulk of the resources to protect the town, both in men and in supplies. The soldiers relieved the sailors in Monterey, but the Marines continued to support the Army in Northern California. Archibald Gillespie and his volunteers headed back to Monterey as well. He was relieved from duty in California on March 1st, 1847, and ordered to travel to Washington on foot with Stockton. When he arrived, he was breveted major in recognition of his service during the Mexican-American War. But before Gillespie started this long and dangerous trek across North America, Sam Brannan published an article in the California Star, giving a heartfelt goodbye to Gillespie. Quote, Captain Gillespie is about to exchange our happy home the scene of his unrequited gallantry, for the busy shores of the Atlantic. Our best wishes are with him, and we would welcome his return to our favored land with pleasure. Unquote. After the returning Americans gathered supplies for the long march, Stockton, Gillespie, Hensley, multiple guides, and about 40 other men left the Sacramento Valley on July 20th. Throughout their journey, they faced multiple attacks by Native Americans. But besides a report claiming that Stockton was shot by an arrow that passed through both of his thighs, the men made it back to the East Coast with relatively little damage. Gillespie arrived in Washington on November 16th and immediately reported to the Commandant for duty. When he did, he learned that Kearney had arrested Fremont and was court-martialing him for his involvement in the California Uprising during the Bear Flag Revolt. Gillespie was immediately called in to testify. The trial was one of the biggest cases at the time, and it received a lot of attention. During Gillespie's testimony, it was clear that the prosecuting team was attempting to tarnish his reputation. The defense team did a great job at pushing back, and they exposed the weak explanation and alibis. The trial lasted weeks, and in the end, Fremont was found guilty of mutiny, disobedience of orders, and insubordination. This trial was highly controversial, and there is a lot of evidence that points to Kearney initiating it solely because of his ego. He wanted to be in charge of California, something that the defense pointed out multiple times, and he was angry that Fremont was selected to do his job. Even most of the judges thought the same, and when Fremont was found guilty, they recommended President Polk grant Fremont a pardon. On February 16th, Polk pardoned Fremont on the mutiny charge and set aside the sentence for the other charges. Quote, Lieutenant Colonel Fremont will accordingly be released from arrest, will resume his sword, and report for duty. Unquote. However, Fremont declined to accept the pardon and instead of heading back into service, he resigned from the army. Kearney was assigned the role of military governor of California, but he would die from diseases he caught in the new state within a year. Now that's karma for you. After the trial, Gillespie went back to a somewhat quiet lifestyle. On November 17, 1847, he was promoted by order of the president. Gillespie received orders by the Secretary of Navy, John Mason. Quote, 
You are hereby relieved from the special duties on which you have been engaged abroad, under the orders of the department, and you will report to General Archibald Henderson for further orders. Unquote. This order seemed to be a blessing in disguise. Gillespie's quiet lifestyle allowed him to meet Elizabeth Duane, daughter of William Duane, former Secretary of the Treasury, and great-granddaughter of Benjamin Franklin. They fell in love quickly, and the two married in 1849 and moved into a two-story frame house on 8th Street in Washington. On January 10, 1853, Gillespie was placed in charge of the Marines at the Washington Navy Yard. At this stage of his life, he experienced a lot of health issues. He was periodically given new assignments, but most of those assignments were denied, with the medical certificate confirming his health conditions. However, he did receive orders to Pensacola, where he and his wife moved and had a daughter shortly after they arrived, Ellen. The heat and humidity caused additional health issues, and a board of medical examiners recommended that Gillespie and the new family return to Washington so his health can improve. He was relieved of command in Pensacola, given indefinite leave, and returned to Washington. But Gillespie would continue to receive the Big Green Weenie. Despite his health conditions, he received orders to unfavorable locations, which he would reluctantly agree to, even though it impacted his health negatively. Gillespie was also dealing with the Treasury Department, who was hounding him on the debts he incurred during the time in California. Keep in mind that this was five or six years after the war had ended. It was so bad that Congress had to step in and justify Gillespie's debt. He even had to reach out to James Buchanan and receive confirmation of his services in California. Shortly after he and his family returned from Pensacola, he received orders from the Commandant stating that he would be placed in charge of the Marine Guard in the Pacific Squadron. Gillespie was infuriated with this duty. His health was failing and he was promised that he wouldn't receive further assignments at sea. But despite his reservations about his orders, Gillespie accepted, and he left for New York. The straw that broke the camel's back happened when he reported for duty in New York. Before they sailed to the Pacific, Gillespie's old rival, Captain Mervine, charged Gillespie with dishonesty and claimed that he defrauded, quote, messmates and brother officers out of the money paid to him buy them for the mess stores, unquote. Out of frustration, Gillespie gave his resignation to the Secretary of the Navy, and the Marine service officially came to an end. Whether or not these charges are valid is unknown. A trial was never held, but the accusations haunted him for the rest of his life. From Washington to California, everyone in North America was aware of these accusations. His decision to quickly resign from the Marine Corps probably didn't help too much with his innocence. Gillespie's life took a turn after that event. He and his wife were separated. She wrote a book titled, Book of Remembrance. However, Archibald Gillespie is not mentioned after he returned from Florida. It's not known why the two separated, and Gillespie would shortly leave Washington and head back to California. However, Captain Mervine wouldn't let those accusations go. When Gillespie arrived, Mervine published an article in the San Francisco Chronicle, labeling Gillespie as a thief. 
Gillespie tried his run at politics and ran for the state librarian in 1857. However, his opponent would constantly point out the accusations, which resulted in Gillespie losing the election. Gillespie had a few roles during his time in California, including the secretary of the governor and notary public for Sacramento County. The last 13 years of Gillespie's life are not known. He held the position as a copy clerk and lived in or around Sacramento until 1869. On August 14th, 1873, Gillespie died in Yerba Buena, one of the first cities he had seen on his initial assignments to California. Even though the remaining years of this Marine's life were tarnished, his time in the Marine Corps was filled with ingenuity, courage, and tenacity. He served bravely during every battle fought, specifically the battle at San Pasqual. Gillespie's reports to the president undoubtedly provided strong intelligence that helped the administration make decisions about the war with Mexico. His documentation also provided a great historical account of the actions in California for historians today. As for the rest of the Marines during the war, they occasionally saw conflicts in towns throughout California. During the Mexican-American War, the Marines and sailors of the Pacific Squadron performed one of the most difficult tasks ever assigned to any U.S. forces. They weren't in constant communication with Washington and received very little guidance. They had virtually no supplies from the United States, and they had no special equipment for their mission. But the Marines and sailors successfully carried out extensive field operations. Mistakes were made during the beginning of the war, but the Pacific Squadron learned from those mistakes. They were able to grow and master tactics that were efficient and effective for the war. The total number of Marines killed in action during the war was 11. The number of Marines wounded in action was 47. And although the casualty rate for Marines seems low, the overall casualty rate was almost 17%. This is one of the highest rates of any American war, even beating both world wars. However, most of the deaths were due to illness. Out of the 15,000 Americans who died during the war, only about 1,700 were killed in action. The number of Mexicans who died during this war exceeds 25,000. On February 2, 1848, the United States and Mexico signed the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, officially ending the war. There were four critical items to this treaty. One is the consequences for Mexico, for its politics and foreign policy. This included Santa Ana losing his presidency. At this point, most Mexican citizens were frustrated with how the Mexican government handled foreign policy, so this didn't ruffle too many feathers. The second being citizenship, for the locals living in the new U.S. states. After the treaty was signed, the locals living in the area had one year to leave and go back to Mexico if they didn't want to live in the U.S. If they preferred to stay, they were welcomed and would become U.S. citizens. About 90% of Mexicans chose to become U.S. citizens. The third is the immigration policy. Before the Mexican-American War, there wasn't a border. It was kind of like the European nation is today, as far as travel was concerned, and it wasn't illegal for Mexicans to cross into U.S. territory. Lastly, 
This treaty created borders and immigration policy about the land and property rights of Mexican citizens that came with the domain. Before the war, Spain had given land to Mexican citizens in the area, specifically the New Mexico region. The treaty stated that the U.S. would respect this land and leave it to the Mexican owners. But just like treaties with Native Americans, this wouldn't happen. There was a Supreme Court case, the United States versus Sandoval, where it was decided that the common lands belonged to the sovereign, not the community, and the U.S. controlled the land. This ruling is how we got many large forest service and Bureau of Land Management lands in New Mexico. 3.4 million acres of land were lost. This issue has been brought up multiple times throughout history, and movements to distribute the land back to the owners are organized still today. For the next 13 years, things were relatively quiet for the Marine Corps, from a conflict perspective. As far as growth, the Marines exploded exponentially. The primary mission of the U.S. Navy was to protect the United States' growing international commerce, and they were sent throughout the world to do this. The Marines joined them on their mission, but just like every other war in U.S. history, the core strength was drastically reduced after the Mexican-American War. Not only would the manpower of the Corps be reduced, but many Marines were demoted to better fit with the new size. As far as the Navy was concerned, steam vessels replaced sailing frigates, which required more Marines to serve at sea. By 1855, more than half of the Marine Corps was serving onboard naval vessels. During the early 1850s, the Japanese regime changed their foreign and cultural policy from isolationist to more open and welcoming visitors from all over the world. As Japan opened its doors to foreign commerce, the U.S. jumped on this opportunity and sent whalers and trading vessels to Japan. On April 17, 1849, Marines on board the U.S. Sloop Preble became the first American ship of war to visit Okinawa. Marines were spread throughout the world, supporting trade in China, fighting rebels on the Fiji island, participating in Nicaragua interventions, stopping mutinies on board Siamese vessels and the Comoro Islands near Madagascar, fighting fires in Nicaragua, and even suppressing the slave trade in Africa. On January 6, 1859, Brigadier General Archibald Henderson, who had been Commandant since 1820, passed away at 76. Henderson is known as the Grand Old Man of the Marine Corps for serving as a Commandant for over 38 years. This is the longest any Marine had held that role. During his time in the Marine Corps, Henderson served notably. He fought on the Constitution against the Cyan and the Levant. Henderson's distinguished service during the Native American Wars in Florida added to his reputation. However, Henderson's greatest accomplishment was taking the Marine Corps from a small, rarely celebrated force to a nationally recognized branch of the military. Henderson was responsible for many of the customs, traditions, uniform regulations, discipline, and many other notable features Marines celebrate today. One of the reasons I personally respect the man so much is due to his correspondence with his Marines. Henderson's letters to his officers are well documented, and the more you read, the more you start to see a theme. He spoke to his Marines with respect 
and genuine concern. The Marine Corps has 11 leadership principles that serve as the fundamentals to leadership. One of them is to know your Marines and look out for their welfare, which Henderson did flawlessly. He had confidence in his Marines, cared about their well-being, and fought countless battles with politicians and senior military leaders on bettering the Marine Corps, and all while keeping a close relationship with the Department of the Navy and civil officials. Henderson always put the Corps ahead of himself and fought for the best interests of the Marines. There's a reason why his legend still lives on. Henderson was loved and respected by his Marines, and this admiration was shared through each generation of new Marines. Unfortunately, this type of leader is not common, and when Henderson passed, so did many of the Marine Corps' opportunities. The Commandant who took his place was Lieutenant Colonel John Harris, and although Harris was a distinguished veteran of the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, and the Native American Wars, he wasn't as good a leader as Henderson. He was old, and at 66, he was the oldest officer to become Commandant. He didn't have the same motivation as Henderson, and the Corps would suffer during his time as Commandant. But Henderson managed to do some good for his Marines before he passed. One of the most notable being better living conditions. They weren't as horrible anymore, and Marines started to see vastly superior barracks and pay. Their reputation was also sky high after the Mexican-American War and the Native American Wars. The Marine Corps uniform was also the jazziest it has ever been, so coupled with their awesome reputation, I bet they had an easy time with the ladies. This part of Marine Corps history also saw less severe punishments. Flogging with the cat of nine tails was reserved only for the most serious cases, like desertion. But just as things started to look up for the Marine Corps, tensions were brewing throughout the country, eventually leading to a civil war. But there was a problem the Corps faced at the start of 1861. The strength of the Corps was only 1,892, with only 46 of those being officers. You could split the officers into two categories. Young, newly appointed second lieutenants, and old-timers who fought in previous engagements, some dating back to the War of 1812. The veteran officers were too old for field duty and many of them wouldn't leave their home stations during the entire Civil War. When the Civil War hit, the Marine Corps would go down a dark path. About half its captains and two-thirds of its lieutenants would resign and join the Confederate Marines. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll introduce the Civil War. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is the Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery by Eric Foner. This is probably one of the best books I have read on Abraham Lincoln. The author does a great job showing how Lincoln's opinion on slavery and racism evolved throughout his life and during Lincoln's time as president. I'm not one of those who believe the Civil War was about state rights. It was indeed about slavery. However, the endgame wasn't always freeing the slaves. There are a lot of nuances we'll cover in future episodes, but if you want an excellent book that focuses on Lincoln's life and how his thoughts changed during the Civil War, this is a great book to read. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook 
and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.